Four L's. Pick that up. Turn it over. Lay it down right over that London trip down there. Wow. Okay. Nice song. Oh, that'd be a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Mythological hero Achilles. Gotta accept that. Okay. Shovel. I'll solve. Yeah. Mythological hero Achilles. Yeah, that's it. Uh, oh boy. Well. Way to represent our state, right? <laughs> hey, uh, we are so glad you're here with us this morning. As Daryl said a moment ago, if it's your first time or maybe first time with us in a long time, we're thrilled that you're here. Thanks for carving time out of your weekend to be with us. Uh, before we go any further, I just want to say that Ross Langston, our high school pastor who was up here just a moment ago, did such an amazing job preaching two weeks ago, didn't he? I mean, he did awesome. <clears throat> In fact, to tell you the truth, I'm kind of sick of you telling me how great he did, all right? Uh, in all seriousness, Ross is doing an amazing job leading our students, and we are so blessed as a church to have not only Ross, but his wife, Nikki, uh, serving on our team. They are doing such a great job. Now, I'm really excited to share with you about some exciting news about what has happened uh, in the life of our church more recently. About a year ago, we talked about how our vision as a church is to be one church with multiple locations across the tri-state region, and in order to to summarize our vision, which that's only one of, of several things we sense God leading us to do in the next five years, we say around here at Crossroads that, that we exist to connect everyone everywhere to Jesus by multiplying leaders, campuses, and, and churches. And, and so over the course of the next five years, a part of that means that we are going to become one church with five different locations. Now, about a year ago, we talked about how we've determined that our next physical campus will be located on the west side of Evansville, and we're going to call that Crossroads West. And, and so over a year, we have been searching for a location, a property of some sort for Crossroads West to begin a meeting. And in each lead that we've come across, we've kind of come up short. It's been a little bit of a discouraging process. But about four years ago, we, we purchased some property on the west side located just off St. Joe's Avenue. It's an old radio station building. And, and so recently, we have determined that God is calling us to move forward with Crossroads West and to make that facility our first Crossroads West location. Therefore, I am excited and thrilled to tell you that officially on the weekend of September 10th of this year, Crossroads West will launch and begin. And uh, <clears throat> it is really cool to see God moving, and uh, the reason why we are doing this is because after Jesus crashed his funeral, he gathered all of his followers together, and he said, hey, look, do whatever it takes to tell as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time about what I have done. And, and so that is the motivation behind all that, all that we are doing and, uh, as we move forward with this vision. Now, the thing is that vision without sacrifice is only a dream. And uh, because of your generosity, we as a church have been able to be debt-free. And I just want you to know that we intend to stay that way as we move forward with this vision. And so on the weekend of May 13th and 14th next month, what we are going to do is we are going to take the entire offering on that weekend and put it towards renovations that the uh, Crossroads West facility is going to need in order for it 
in order for it to be a sustainable space to meet week in and week out and, and for it to really be a, an excellent worship space. And, and so I just want to throw that out there. We're going to talk more about that after Easter, okay, but just kind of mark that date and, and begin thinking about just small ways that you can maybe make some sacrifices between now and then so that you can create more margin in your budget and so that people on the west side uh, and in the west part of our community can have a greater and better chance of bumping into Jesus, all right? We are excited about this. We know that our best days as a church are still before us, and and it is an exciting time to, to be a part of this church. Now this weekend, we're going to be wrapping up this study that uh, we have been in for the past 15 weeks or so. We've been walking through this book in scripture called 1 Corinthians, and about 2,000 years ago, this was really a letter that was written to some followers of Jesus who were struggling, they were wrestling with, with really what kind of difference could Jesus make in, in my life? What kind of, Jesus, what kind of difference can, can he make in light of what I'm going through? Does he even care about my circumstances? And, and for the past 15 weeks or so, we've been looking at the struggles these early believers faced. And so today we're going to see how, how the writer of this letter, a guy by the name of Paul, he ends 1 Corinthians in the same exact way that, that he began it in chapter 1. In other words, what we are going to talk about today, this is Paul's way of saying that this is the most important belief in all of Christianity. It's the most important thing that we can believe and accept, yet it's also the most difficult belief for us to accept. Now, just if we're being totally honest with each other, have you ever read through Scripture, you ever read a story in the Bible and asked yourself, did that really happen? I mean, really? Did, did it happen in the way that it says that, that it occurred? I mean, how, how is that even possible? We've all come across things like that, right? We've all been there before. And I know that there are some of us here right now, you aren't there yet with this whole following Jesus thing. Maybe you're listening online right now and, and you just don't want anything to do with church. You're skeptical, you're suspicious. You think that if you're spiritual, if you become religious, then that means you can't really have fun in life anymore. And so you've just kind of stayed away from God, right? I don't know your story. I don't know your reasons for... Why you've maybe been running from God, why you're skeptical, why, why you're in this place of doubt. But I'm willing to bet that at some point, somewhere along the way in your past, you came to this realization and you settled on this. It goes like this. That God failed to live up to your expectations. God failed to live up to your expectations. In other words, the, the God you read about in the Bible as he reveals himself, he, he's very different from the God that you've maybe experienced in your life because you maybe had this moment or this season of life when you needed a miracle, you needed an intervention, you, you needed an answer, you needed some kind of proof in order to keep hanging on, in order to keep going, in order to hang on to hope, but instead what you got was silence. And so you just wrote God off and said, well, he's not real, I want nothing to do with him. And so if you've been there before, if that's where you're at today, I want you to know that you can identify with the Corinthians, Corinthian believers more than you may realize because they were walking through life as they received this letter for the very first time confused. I mean, they had kind of drifted from their faith. And, and so Paul, as we are going to see today, reminds them of what it all goes back to, the most important thing, and, and even provides some proof about why we believe 
is true. And, and so if you're following along, I want you to pick up with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us in the chapel, it's on one of the tables as you walked in a moment ago. And uh, 1 Corinthians is towards the back of the Bible in between the books of Romans and 2 Corinthians. And, and again, we're going to pick up in chapter 15 and, and verse 1 today. And so here, here's what Paul says. Again, he's landing the plane with the Corinthians. He says this. Excuse me. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Now, right off, I love how Paul addresses these believers as brothers and sisters. That's significant because for the previous 14 chapters in this letter, Paul called them out on how they were totally missing the point. Their life was messy. They were living in sin. They were in brokenness. And yet when Paul started this church, he lived with them for about 18 months, for about a year and a half, and he taught them how to follow Jesus. He showed them what this looks like. But then once he left the city of Corinth and and planted a church in another city along the Mediterranean Sea, it's evident that these believers here did the complete opposite of what Paul told them to do and and how he told them to live. How many of you have that little nudge or urge inside you to do the exact opposite of what you're told to do or what you're told not to do? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, touching a hot stove is never appealing to me until my wife says, don't touch the stove. You know what I'm talking about? And so while these believers were messy and and their life was full of sin, Paul reminds them right here that your identity and your worth and your value is secure in what Jesus has done. Now, this word gospel right here, it simply means good news. and, And in this context, it refers to the good news that what Jesus offers and and provides, that that everything that we're working towards in life has been paid for, that we can rest in the assurance that we've been accepted by our creator. And we can live with this promise that our creator accepts us and we will live with him forever. Now, in some churches, gospel kind of gets diluted. It gets a little bit confused. And and you get the idea that it's not really good news, but it's kind of good advice in order to make you more successful in life. Or sometimes you get the impression that that the gospel is good information to kind of tuck in your back pocket for when a rainy day happens and you need to go back to it. Or or it's good information to, uh, you know, make you feel better about yourself in order to improve your self-esteem. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. It's all about what Jesus has done. And if you think about it, news always demands a response, right? I mean, you can't hear about something And just be neutral about what it is that you heard. You're either going to reject it, you're going to ignore it, or you're going to do something about it. And so whether you know it or not, wherever you are with Jesus, whether you're running towards him or away from him, that is your response to the gospel, to the good news of what God has done on your behalf. And the good news of Jesus isn't that he makes bad people good. It isn't that he makes good people better. No, the good news of Jesus is that he brings dead things back to life. And he proved it by crashing his funeral, by coming back to life. And that's what it comes back to. That's the essence of the gospel. Now, this isn't just something that you believe one time and then you move on, as as Paul kind of clarifies here. It's a process and journey. In other words, just because you start following Jesus, it doesn't mean that life is going to always turn out for you the way that you want. 
No, you're still going to struggle. It's still going to be difficult. Overnight, your, your addictions aren't going to be cured, and you're not going to be free necessarily overnight. And so that's why Paul continues to challenge us in verse 1 by saying that, that we've got to stand firm in this belief. We, we've got to remain steadfast in this conviction. Check out verse 2. Paul says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. You see, when this letter was written, Christianity wasn't as broadly accepted and known as it is today. You didn't just become a Christian because it was the cool thing to do or because Grandma Betty had a, a, a magnet on her refrigerator with a verse on it and you wanted to be like her, all right? It wasn't something that you could inherit from a family member. No, following Jesus meant that, that you were signing up to be ridiculed, persecuted, and, and opposed in life. Now, here's the thing. Being a Christian has very little to do with how much you agree with Jesus. To tell you the truth, Jesus doesn't really care with how, about how much you agree with him. No, faith isn't about some emotion or feeling. To believe means to follow. Paul reminded these Corinthians that in order to keep going in life and hold on to Jesus, even when it wasn't popular, because here's the thing, he knew eventually it was going to cost them something. After all, you can't separate true belief from surrender. Now, let me say it like this. That belief without surrender when it comes to Jesus is, is just kind of passive agreement. Yeah, that happened. But belief with surrender is authentic faith. And this is really what Jesus is after. There's a difference between initial acceptance of something being true and, and this continual ongoing belief and conviction that, yeah, I, I'm going to live it out. I'm going to apply it to my life. No, if Jesus has the power to defeat death, do you know that means that, that he has probably the right to tell us how to live and show us a better way to live? He has the authority to do that. Do you believe that that's true? About five years ago, uh, as we were living down in Dallas, I, I was playing a lot of golf at the time, and, and I kind of believed that I needed some new clubs in order to play better. You ever believed that lie before? All right. And so, I mean, I really wasn't playing all that bad at the time. I was averaging about 75 uh, on a round of golf. Uh, the back nine was always a different story, though. I always played much worse, all right? And so I'm in this golf shop one day, and I'm looking at some new clubs, and, and the salesman approaches me, and, and he goes on about how, how great these clubs were that I was looking at. There were some Nike irons. He, he knew how they were designed, where they were made, which pro on the PGA Tour played with them. And, and, I mean, he had me sold. Well, all of a sudden, I realized that they happened to be one of the more expensive clubs in the entire store, and he was working for some commission. All right, so he knew what he was doing. He was trying to convince me that these clubs were what I needed in order to improve my golf game. And, and so I wanted to test him a little bit. I said, man, that's awesome. Let me ask you this. What are they like to play with? I mean, ha have you played with these? He said, oh, no, not me. <laughs> he said, I only play with the best clubs. That's why I play with Titleist. Really? That didn't make sense to me because here he had just told me for the past like 20 minutes that these Nike irons were the best thing available and that he was talking about it from a firsthand perspective. But then once I pressed into him a little bit and I said, well, what, what, what do they like to play with? He, there was a disconnect between what he really believed, what he was trying to sell me with and, and what he actually played with out on the golf course. You see, you can't separate belief from surrender. You because what you believe, how you believe, determines how you live. 
Authentic faith leads to surrender. And you see, true belief is not just acceptance that something is true. Now, it may start there, but it, doesn't, it never just stays there. And so as Paul, as we're going to see here in a moment, our faith is not a blind faith. And that's a good thing because Jesus doesn't call us to excuse our intellect just to follow him. Look at verses 3 through 4, or first just 3. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now Paul right here doesn't say that for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that the flood really happened and Noah built an ark and it floated for 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, for, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that the creation of the world happened in six literal days. Now, it's not that those things aren't important, all right? No, but he starts with Jesus and then goes from there. The most important thing that you can believe and the most important thing that, that we read throughout Scripture is the claim that Jesus died a literal physical death. He didn't just pass out. It wasn't metaphorical. He was buried for three days, and then he rose back to life. And so Paul makes the point here that if that didn't happen, if Jesus didn't die or if he didn't come back to life, then no other belief throughout the Bible matters. And you know what? Our faith is pointless. That's why he goes on to say this in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. See, it all goes back to the cross. The gospel without a cross is really no gospel at all. It's not good news. Some historical records tell us that the crucifixion was first used about 800 years before the time of Jesus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian and, and he witnessed many crucifixions. And, and here's what he documented about those who were being hung on a cross. He wrote it like this. He said, it is the most wretched of deaths. Now, if we're honest with ourselves... The cross is one of the most difficult things for us to believe and to accept. Some have called Jesus hanging on the cross as, as divine child abuse. Gandhi was noted as saying that, that he could accept the idea of Jesus as a martyr or Jesus dying as an example for us of what it really looks like to love and to sacrifice. But he said, you know, I just can't accept the fact that there was anything supernatural, spiritual, or miraculous about the cross of Jesus. You see, the cross gets really personal and offensive for us because it represents how hopeless we all are because of our sin. Hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, a man by the name of Isaiah described the cross like this. Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, talking about Jesus. He put him to grief, and, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offer, offspring. Well, what's he talking about? Well, the cross here is referred to as a guilt offering. Some translations simply refer to it as a guilt offering. Why? So that we can walk free. You see, the crucifixion of Jesus was, was not just another death that the Romans could, could tally on their records. No, Jesus died what's called an atoning death. What's that mean? What, what's that all about? Well, atonement literally means at one mint, all right? I know, I'm smart. <laughs> at one mint, break it up like that. It's the idea that, that a debt has been paid and, and that unity has happened and, rec and reconciliation has occurred. And so the question is this, who is unified through the cross? I mean, why was there separation to begin with? You see, God chose the cross to bring us back to himself, 
One scholar by the name of John Stott wrote this. He said, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. That's what sin is. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, sin. God puts himself where we deserve to be. That's God's response to our sin. You see, God created this perfect universe that, that we as people, as humanity, we messed up. Therefore, someone had to pay. I mean, we all know, whether you're a believer or not, that when something goes wrong, when a mistake is made, somebody has to pay for it in some way, right? About a year ago, I was out in the garage cleaning up and, and organizing some things. And I know that sounds really impressive, but I was really just trying to earn some points with my wife, all right? I was out there with our uh, oldest, he was four years old at the time, John Ryman, and uh, I was doing something with the shelves when all of a sudden, uh, John Ryman said, hey daddy, watch this. He proceeded to pick up a small little stone and then he threw it right at my wife's car. I couldn't believe he did it. And so of course he got in trouble and there was a big dent right on the driver's side door and I thought, oh no, what in the world, why in the world did you do this, buddy? And now, here's the thing about that. I mean, that dent is not going away. It wasn't just going to vanish or disappear, right? Somebody had to pay for it. And so, really, I had three options right then and there. I could have my son pay for it, for somebody to come over and pop the dent out, go to a body shop and, and have them do it there. I could pay for it out of my pocket. That would be the second way to pay for it. Or the third option would be to just ignore that the dent was even there and never tell my wife that it actually happened and hope that she would not notice. So what do you think I did? Number three, exactly. And she didn't know it was there until last night when I told this story, all right? <laughs> but you see, either way... Because John Ryman couldn't pay, possibly pay for the dent and the damage that he'd done, it was either going to be on, it was going to have to be something that I absorbed or I paid for out of my pocket. And so the result is we now have a car that we drive around in that's less than perfect. And we know that it is imperfect and the dent is there. And, and again, the dent's not going away. It's not going to just disappear, it doesn't just vanish out of thin air. That's not how it works. And you see, the cross tells us that we are more broken and we are more flawed and sinful than we, have, than we even realized. And yet we are more loved and valuable and significant than, than we ever thought was possible. You see, the cross of Jesus tells us that, that Jesus didn't just suffer for us, but, but he really suffered with us. Let's pick up in verse 4. Paul says this, Jesus was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that word raised here in the Greek is really significant, all right? The, the tense that Paul chose to use here means that the resurrection of Jesus was an event that occurred. It happened in the past, but it's still in effect today. That power is still occurring. In other words, the resurrection wasn't just something that Jesus did in the past. It's something he's still doing today, right now. Now, have you ever wondered why in the world God waited three days to bring Jesus back to life? I mean, what kept him from resurrecting his son back to life almost immediately whenever he breathed his last breath on, on that Friday before? I could be wrong about this. But you know, I think God waited so that he could identify with us when we're waiting and it seems like all hope has been lost in our life. You ever felt like that? 
I mean, maybe it was his plan all along so that we could be reminded that whenever we're weak, vulnerable, impatient, depressed, frustrated, we feel like we have nothing left to give in life and, and we're about to throw in the towel altogether, that we serve a God who can bring dead things back to life. You see, the longer Jesus was dead, the more his power could be seen. Now, here's what I'm learning. Sometimes God doesn't intervene, save us, or answer us in the way that we want. I mean, if I was God, I would do some things differently. But he hasn't asked me. (laughs) And so at the end of the day, we've all got to wrestle through this one question. Can you learn to trust him anyways? Can you hang on? Can you keep going? In the next few verses, Paul reminded this church of the undeniable proof that Jesus really was alive. Check out what he says in verses 5 through 8. He says, Jesus, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 people of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, look, if you still need proof, go and ask them. They're still alive. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. Again, we've talked about this before. He's the best proof that we have that Jesus really was God because what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was God, right? He appeared to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one who was abnormally born. Isn't it interesting that the first man Jesus appeared to was the person who had denied him on the day of his death? Cephas was another name for for Simon Peter, and yet it's as if this was Jesus' way of saying, hey, Peter, I I know what you did. You weren't there for me when I needed you most. You you were embarrassed by me. You left me, but you know what? I want you to know that I forgive you. You're a good man. I don't see you for what you've done. I I see you for who you're becoming. I don't see your sin. No, I, I see your potential. Here's the proof that I'm greater than what you did. Now, the Corinthians were... This church was full of people who struggled to believe that this happened. And, and despite what you may think or have been told before, doubt is not a bad thing. All right, asking questions is a good thing. After all, believing that a dead man came back to life, that's a stretch, right? I mean, that takes a little bit of faith. It's outside of the realm of nature. I mean, sometimes we think, I've never seen it happen before, therefore it can't be true. But just because you haven't seen it, it doesn't make it any less true. Now, suppose for just a second, you wouldn't use this argument, by the way, in any other uh, area of life. Suppose for just a second that you had no idea how babies were made and how life was formed. How would you react if I said, well, it begins by lighting some candle and playing some Frank Sinatra in the background? A little sperm meets the egg inside the woman, and and at that moment of conception, life begins. And over the course of several months, that that little fetus forms arms and legs, a beating heart and a mind and ears and, and eyes and... And over the course of months, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until about nine months later, it's time for the baby to be born. And and when the delivery happens, there's really nothing to it. At least I've been told there's nothing to it, all right? Now, if you didn't know how life was formed, you'd probably think, there's no way. That is is ridiculous. That That is a stretch of the imagination. And yet... Because we hear about babies being born every single day, we tend to forget the miracle that happens when life is formed, right? And so just because you maybe haven't seen Jesus who rose from the dead doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen. It's not a very good or strong argument. Another argument that people use against the resurrection of Jesus is that his friends and followers just made it all up to, to scheme a bunch of people and to, and, to, and to lie and to see how much power and authority they could have in, in the Roman world. 
Well, let's suppose that that actually happened, okay? Let, let's play this out, and let's imagine for just an, uh, a moment that we were close to Jesus, and he died, but he never came back to life, and so we get together, and we think, how can we rip people off? How can we convince people that he came back to life and, and start the, the greatest movement that will go on and on and on forever, the greatest movement the world has ever seen? What kind of plot lines or principles would we use to convince people that Jesus had really defeated? death. Well, the first plot line might go like this. Jesus dies a private death so it can never be disproven. Jesus dies a private death so it can never be disproven. I mean, logical sense is that Jesus dies in a very private way so that nobody could ever say he he didn't really die. And as, as the least amount of eyewitnesses that we could have with the death, the better so that it couldn't be disproven. And yet, The cross of Jesus, his crucifixion happened not just out in public, but occurred during the busiest time of year in all of Jerusalem when Jews from all over the country came to the city in order to celebrate the Passover celebration, the Passover feast. The second plot line would go like this. Jesus dies a heroic death to inspire more followers. Now, this is probably pretty dark of me, but I've told my wife for a long time that when I die, I hope to just go out in a blaze of glory, all right? I mean, I want to die in a way that one day later on after my death, people are sitting around and someone says, hey, whatever happened to Garcia? And someone says, wolves. <laughs> wolves got him. He was trying to protect an elderly lady. Right? <laughs> now, if you want to start a movement, you want to have a heroic death. Yet in the first century, there was no more shameful or humiliating way to die than on a cross. It represented defeat. And so there's no way that lethal injection today, if we're talking in terms of today, there's no way that we would think an electric chair, lethal injection, would, would somehow spark a movement, right? Here's the third thing. It goes like this. Jesus first appears to men after his resurrection to make it more credible. All right, now, don't be offended by this. It's just reality that during the first century, women had no value in worth. They were viewed just a little bit higher than dogs in their society. If you were a man and you cared at all about your reputation, then you didn't even talk or look at a woman out in public. And so if you were trying to convince a group of people about something and you're trying to convince them of an audacious claim like somebody rose back to life and and there were some eyewitnesses, the last thing you would do would be to say that a group of women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, right? And yet in all four biographies in the life of Jesus, they all tell us that women were the very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of, of Christ. The only plausible explanation behind that is if it really happened. Here's the last thing. It's more of a principle. It goes like this. Don't risk dying for something that you know is false. You know, it's intellectually impossible and psychologically impossible for us to give up our life for something that you know is a lie. And yet most of Jesus' closest witnesses and followers died rather than deny the fact that they had seen Jesus alive after seeing him die. You see, the reality is Jesus only borrowed the tomb. And so as we wrap up today, I want to talk to those of us who've had that moment in our past where we've said, I believe that this is true. I I receive it, and and I'm a follower of Jesus. 
You see, at some point in your past, there was this moment when you decided to step out and believe that Jesus really was God and that he could conquer and that he conquered death. Now, I suppose that there was a time when you struggled to believe that, but if you're like me, my bigger struggle today is learning to live in the victory that Jesus won for me. What do I mean by that? Well, in another letter to some Christians in Rome, Paul said that the same power that resurrected Jesus on that Sunday morning is the same power that lives and dwells inside every follower of Jesus, all of those of us who believe. In this past week, I got to tell you, I didn't spend a lot of time wondering whether or not the tomb is still empty or if Jesus really rose back to life. I just didn't. But I do look back on my week and I realize that I did waste a lot of time doing some stuff. I worried a lot. I responded in fear in different moments. I was pretty concerned about the future at certain times. I wasted a lot of energy trying to impress people. You see, it's easy for us to say that we believe, but it's something completely different to be actually changed by what we believe. Right? And so here's a question I want to end with us today for every Christian, for every follower of Jesus listening to me right now. It goes like this. If you believe that Jesus is alive, in what ways do you live like he's still dead? If you believe that he's alive, in what ways do you still live like he's dead? Now, these parts of our life are never really obvious to us, but they describe things that lost power over us at the cross. The cross says that we are dead to fear, guilt, shame, insecurities, brokenness, discouragement, and sin. And so let me ask you, have you lost hope in the midst of what you're going through? You see, the king who battled for our freedom and declared victory for us by walking out of his tomb, you know what? He can handle the parts of your life that seem the most helpless and the most dead. You see, his victory, his victory is really our victory. And if that's true, in what way are you living a defeated life? I think sometimes the only thing standing between God's power and our circumstances is our willingness to, to just let go and trust. Now, as you know, next weekend is Easter, and we're going to have six services, two on Saturday, four on Sunday. We've talked a lot the past six weeks or so about how we're encouraging you to serve a service, but bring two people with you as well. And, and for those of you that have signed up to serve, thank you. And again, we still have some spots that we need to be filled. Now, my experience has been that as followers of Jesus, there's Fewer parts of our life where we tend to act like Jesus is still dead and that we live very defeated than when it comes to actually telling people about what God has done in our life and inviting them to church with us. Why? Because we fear rejection. We don't want them to think less of us, right? And so we respond in fear. And, and some of us, we, we have been living in defeat and fear for so long, and it's so thick that we've forgotten what victory is really all about. And so this week is an opportunity for you to live in that victory by inviting people next weekend with you. Now, I want to give you the inside scoop on what next weekend is going to look like so you can know what to expect and so that your guests know what to expect as well. From the moment you pull on the parking lot next weekend, we are going to welcome people. We're going to show them love and hospitality from the parking lot all the way until they sit down in the worship center or in the chapel or in the overflow areas. And and our job is very simple next weekend, and that is to show people how much we love them, to show people how much we care about them, even if they never decide to believe like we do, right? Because they matter to God, and we serve as kind of a microcosm, a picture of that. It's one thing to, 
talk about the gospel. It's one thing to preach the gospel, but it's another to actually show and illustrate the gospel. And so that's our intention next weekend is to do just that. After services, we're going to give every guest a copy of a book called Imagining Heaven because for the next five weeks after Easter, we are going to begin a series called The Heaven I Never Knew. And and in that series, we are going to look at what eternity looks like and and what we can anticipate for all followers of Jesus, what it's going to be like to be with God forever. And so that book is just going to be a resource we're going to put in every guest's hand and in hopes that they come back and learn about this place where they can be. Music is going to be awesome as usual. The preaching, eh, you know. Two ladies came up to me last night and said, well, why don't you just have Ross preach? (laughs) Thanks, Mom. I am excited about the direction I'm going with the message. I'm going, to look, I'm going to do something a little bit differently. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the cross and the resurrection from the perspective of the thief who hung beside Jesus. And at the very last second of his life, he turned to Christ and said, you really are who you say you are, right? Can you forgive me? And Jesus turned to him and said, hey, look, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, here's the thing. That thief didn't need to be told that he was up on the cross, He didn't need to be told that he was guilty. He knew he was guilty. His life was defined by his sin. He was literally hanging in shame. And yet at the very last second, he got what he least deserved. And that was grace. Jesus gave him a second chance. And doesn't that describe a lot of our stories? I'm willing to bet that that describes some stories of people who are going to be here for the first time next weekend. I've asked the band to come out here and sing the song Resurrecting. We've sung it before. We've sung it a lot. And it's going to be sung next weekend, all right? Here's what I want you to do. I just want to do something a little bit differently. As the band sings this song right now, I want you to imagine what it would be like if next weekend the people that you bring with you, when this song is sung, you look over to that person sitting beside you, and you can see that the lyrics of the song are making sense to them for the very first time? And what what would it look like if that person you've been praying for, that person that you've been loving on, investing, that child, a neighbor, a, a coworker, whoever it may be, they see the lyrics up on the screen and they start to mumble it to themselves. And for the first time they say, yeah, you know what, I, I want this. You see, an invitation has the power and potential to change absolutely everything in someone's life. And so I want you to know, we are going to be ready. I promise that our teams are going to be prepared next weekend. The question is, will you? Let's go ahead and stand up right now. And let's imagine as we sing this song, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to do that, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. And um, I'm thankful that you give us victory. You promise that defeat doesn't have to define our life. And yet when you walked out of that tomb on Sunday morning, in a weird kind of way, we walked out with you if if we've made that decision to trust, believe, have faith. And and so we can live in that victory. And, And so would you help us, Lord, to realize where that resurrection power needs to invade some parts of our life that are broken and messy. And then we have yet to really surrender back to you. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.